1 through 14. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. Notice that that the, the blessings show that we're the call to the Lord. He says this should be part and parcel of what it means to be Christians. Verse 10 again, Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant you plenty of goods in the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your ground and the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasure the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not be beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today and are careful to observe them. So you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day to the right or the left to go after other gods to serve them. Amen. Father God, what a glorious God you are. Uh, You have poured out blessing upon us as undeserving sinners. We want to follow after your covenant, Lord. We seek to follow your law, but we recognize apart from the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ and justification, uh, there is no hope for us. And apart from the infused righteousness of Jesus Christ, there can be no sanctification. And so we come before you to worship you, to bless you, that you have already blessed us. We love you because you first loved us. And, oh God, our hearts are thrilled with the kindness and uh, the generosity with which you have poured out your blessings upon Israel of old and that you have promised to uh, bring into our lives as well. And I pray that our worship would ascend to the throne through the merits of Jesus Christ as we hear and as we commit ourselves to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Today we're going to wrap up this uh, series on the Christian and prosperity. Uh, There is a ton more that could be said. I've got a big sheaf of materials that um, uh, could be fodder for uh, sermons in the future that I've pulled together. Uh, and I think it's a very, very important topic. I think it's important uh, just because of the subject material. It's important because it's been neglected and or distorted, but I think mostly neglected in the church. But uh, anyway, we began this series with <clears throat> a sermon on 3 John, verse 2, 
showing that God delights to prosper his people in every area of their lives. <clears throat> and um, maybe we could uh, try to say it together here. Third uh, John, verse 2, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Okay, marvelous uh, scripture that indicates God's not just interested in the unseen prosperity of our spirit. He's interested in prospering our bodies with health. He's interested in prospering us in absolutely every area of life. And so <clears throat> we began with the affirmations of God's blessing. We're going to end with uh, the same encouraging note from Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 28. And actually, uh, this is an overview of chapters 27 through 29. It's obvious we're not going to cover everything, but I want to at least give you highlights of these chapters that uh, can stimulate you to study them uh, for yourself. And I'm going to go through these. If you want outlines to follow, we've got about 65 outlines on the back table there. You can send somebody back to, to get them for your family. Uh, but <clears throat> you can follow those or take notes and pick them up later if you desire. But I'm going to ask six questions of this passage. It's kind of a unit of thought, chapters 27 through 29. <clears throat> and then I'm going to try to... Uh, answer those questions. And by the way, there are also a few handouts, uh, maybe 20, that John Obermiller pulled together, a beautiful outline of the curses of Deuteronomy 28, where he systematizes them with uh, other passages. And if you want those, those are on top of my brief briefcase at the back uh, table. So you can uh, get a copy of those as well. Now, the first question in the outline is this. Aren't there more blessings than cursings? Do I really need to read through this uh, section of Scripture? Uh, some people find uh, you know, that pretty discouraging to read through the entire chapter because it's true. First 14 verses that we read, those are very, very encouraging verses. But the next 54 verses are concentrated, intense cursings that the Lord brings upon those who rebel against his word and just won't live uh, in terms of it. And that's not all. Uh, they just finished in chapter 27 giving, what is it, uh, 11 through 26, 15 verses of cursing there. And so in one sense, you'd have to say, well, obviously there's more curses than blessings because uh, there's a whole lot more verses that are devoted to that than to blessing. But the, And I think there's a good reason for that too. I think part of the reason is just psychologically we need to be hit up that way. We're sinners. We don't like to think of ourselves as as a sinners, we like to think of ourselves as deserving far better than we get. It's not easy to get that through our skulls, but it's very hard to get through our skulls that we need God's cursings. And so God gives a whole lot more so that we will live in the fear of the Lord. Uh, a holy fear for believers, well, let me just illustrate that. I wasn't actually intending to, but <clears throat> out in Ethiopia, I had about 17 beehives that I kept. And uh, we did it Ethiopian style with the exception of one box, but usually we made them out of bamboo and I put them up in the trees. And so it's pretty hard to run, you know, if you have a hole in your clothing and start getting uh, leaks of bees uh, coming through. But uh, <clears throat> I had a real, a real uh, sense of fear of the killer bees. There's about three variety of bees. One of them, uh, there have been several people who have been killed by them for no reason. They just, they just attack you. But... When I wore my bee suit, I had no, no kind of a trembling fear, but I had fear still because the proof of it was I wore my bee suit, right? So because I wore my bee suit, I was able to work with these bees no problem. And in the same way, 
Christians who are covered with the righteousness of Jesus, who are confessing their sins before the Lord, they still have a fear of the Lord, but they're able to crawl up in daddy's lap, okay? Um, the only time I was trembling is when my dad got out the paddle, you know? But otherwise, I had a respect for him. I didn't sass my dad. That's the kind of fear that we're talking about, going down that, that uh, rabbit trail. But there's another way in which the answer to question number one is no. Let me give you a little rule of interpretation from the larger catechism on how to interpret these blessings and cursings. This rule shows that for every blessing, there is an implied curse, and for every curse, there is an implied blessing. It's found in larger catechism number 99, and here's what the question says. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? It goes on to give eight rules. Rule number four says this, that as where a duty is commanded, the contrary sin is forbidden. And where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. When God commands us to honor our parents, well, it's obvious he forbids us from dishonoring our parents, right? The two are logically bound up in each other. If you read in Matthew 15, where Christ gives an exposition of the, of the fifth commandment, he draws that out. He, he takes it in the, in the, um, uh, in, in the opposite direction. And he does so with the promise that was annexed to that. The way the fifth commandment was worded is so that your days may be long upon the earth. Well, Christ flips that over and he implies that if we are dishonoring our parents, we ought to be cut off. Okay, our days ought to be short upon the earth. And that's what this rule is getting at. And so it goes on to say, where a promise is annexed, the contrary threatening is included. And where a threatening is annexed, the contrary promise is is included, and it gives several scriptures to prove that. Now, that means that the verses we just finished reading through in verses 1 through 14 imply that if we're breaking the covenant, every one of those could be turned into its opposite, into a curse. And the same is true of the cursings later on in the chapter. Uh, for example, you could just arbitrarily take any of these. Uh, verse 20, the Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke. Okay, if it implies a blessing, if we're keeping God's covenant, then you could say that um, uh, the Lord will send on you blessing and um, instead of confusion, insight and wisdom, and instead of rebuke, favor in all that you put uh, your hands to do. And so uh, when you look at it from that perspective, it really opens up the chapter. L just take a look at verse 3. I'll, I'll show you how they do it here. Verse 3 says, Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Now look over at verse 16. Here's the implied opposite. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Now the curses are drawn out in far greater detail, but every one of them is implied in the blessings that are in verses 1 through 14. Okay, so can you see that? That the scripture really does develop this this rule, and they give several scriptures to prove that. Now, that really opens up the, the, the passage in a marvelous way, and I think you'd have to say then, literally, there's more curses, but in terms of implication, there's an equal number of curses and blessings. Now, the second question is this. Are these sanctions? Sanction is a blessing and a curse that's uh, used to back up God's commandments, are these sanctions even relevant for today? Because there's no point in studying them if they're not supposed to be applied in the New Testament uh, period. And there's a lot of people who say, no, they're not relevant at all. Now, <clears throat> we Reformed Christians can't accept that. We're whole Bible Christians, right? And we believe that we have to submit to the whole of the Scriptures. And when I preached on Deuteronomy 8, 
I gave five reasons why the book of Deuteronomy is one of the most important books that the church could be looking at in the 20th century. Now, I'm going to give you two more reasons. I've gotten your outline and some sub-sub reasons as well uh, that you could give to a person who doesn't buy into our worldview. You know, dispensationalists uh, say, well, if it's not in the New Testament or at least in the book of Proverbs, you know, it's not something that relates today. And so I say, first of all, you can say, yeah, many of these sanctions are repeated in the book of Proverbs. And so you can, in fact, if you flip over your outline, you'll see a, a list of some of the, <clears throat> uh, I, I just gave a few of the financial sanctions, but there's many other sanctions in the book of Proverbs that say, you violate my covenant, here's some of the ways I'm going to curse you financially. Now, most uh, people, most uh, evangelical scholars will say, okay, Proverbs is something that is universally applicable. It's wisdom distilled, and if it's in there, you can apply it. And I'd say, okay, this is just an application of what Deuteronomy is talking about. But what about in the New Testament? Does the New Testament uphold these sanctions? And I say, absolutely, yes. And I don't give all the quotes from Deuteronomy, but I think these are pretty good ones. First one is Matthew 4, verse 4, when Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, two things you can note here. The first one is, he says, we don't have an option <clears throat> of what words we're going to submit to in the Bible. We've got to submit to all of the words. But the second thing I want you to note is that the verse Jesus is quoting from, it's Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, <clears throat> what he quotes is the second half of the sentence. It's the purpose clause of the sentence. The first half of the sentence gives a summary of the blessings and the curses that came upon Israel. And God says the reason he brought those uh, curses on Israel is, quote, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, Jesus knew when, he, when Satan was tempting him to turn those, breads, uh, those stones into bread, Jesus knew Anytime you took shortcuts around God's law in order to help yourself prosper, in this case, prospering in your body, you're going to end up getting cursed. He knew that. And so that's a perfect scripture to be using to resist Satan. You, the second half you can't take if you're not willing to take the first half of the sentence. And so basically Jesus is saying, God is a God of sanctions. I'm, some, I'm a person who's going to submit to his will because I know in God's curses and God's blessings are the only way that we can uh, that, that we can live. Okay, look at the the next one. Subpoint two gives two New Testament passages that uphold all of God's negative sanctions. Both verses say, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." That's a quote from Deuteronomy thirty-two. And the Hebrews ten thirty passage not only quotes that verse but quotes the next verse in Deuteronomy thirty-two that says, "The Lord will judge." His people. Now, that's a very powerful testimony that the New Testament is saying, take seriously these sanctions in Deuteronomy because those two passages or those two verses in Deuteronomy 32 are basically God saying, well, look, guys, I want you to take seriously my promises and my curses because the Lord will judge his people. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And Hebrews uses it in exactly the same way, saying, hey, our God continues to be a God who brings his fire of judgment. Uh, he says, I serve the Lord with fear and trembling, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay? 
Point three says that Paul does the same thing for the blessings of Deuteronomy when he quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, and says those were not just intended for the Jews. Uh, he calls upon the Gentiles to rejoice in those blessings too. He says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So that verse indicates even as originally given, Deuteronomy was intended for not only Jews, but also for believing Gentiles. Can you see that? I mean, that's a quote from Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy was indicating Gentiles who believe can come into those blessings as well. Now, Paul applies those comforting words from Deuteronomy to Gentiles today, and there'd be no way that it would apply unless the blessings apply. Okay, points four through seven, we'll just end with this. I'll let you read the rest, I think. Uh, they prove that this passage, this last section of Deuteronomy is relevant for law and grace, gospel, legalism, uh, definition of sin. Paul bases the gospel on this section. In Galatians 3.10, Paul says of the curses that they apply to, quote, everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. He says there's no exceptions. Deuteronomy continues to be relevant in all of its curses and all of its blessings to those who are outside of Christ. But it also is re relevant to believers. <clears throat> Deuteronomy goes on to show how the gospel protects us since Jesus bore the curse for us. Okay, so there's no danger of our being cast away uh, from the Lord according to Deuteronomy. And Hebrews 13 verse 5 quotes Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 to prove it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy says God continues to discipline his people when they rebel against his word. And Hebrews 12, verse 7 alludes to Deuteronomy 8, verse 5 to prove that we will be disciplined. Okay, can you see? Hebrews, Paul, the, uh, the other passages, they're just giving an exposition of uh, Deuteronomy. Now, I'm going to skip over two or three pages here and go on to question number three. Are these blessings and cursings consistent with grace? Short answer, yes. <laughs> and uh, I want to give a a brief overview of chapter 7 to, to show that he ushers them into these blessings and these cursings through the framework of grace, rich grace. And let's start at verse 4. <clears throat> Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today and you shall whitewash them with lime and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron tool on them uh, one of the reasons they didn't want them um, cutting the stone was because it would kind of spoil the imagery. The imagery is that God provides everything in salvation. We contribute nothing. And so the altar and the sacrifice on it were something that uh, uh, points to the sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 6, You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there <clears throat> and rejoice before the Lord your God. <clears throat> burnt offerings uh, represented the propitiation of Jesus. That's just a fancy word for turning away God's wrath, his anger. The peace offerings were the positive side. It was ushering us into fellowship, and that's why always after peace offerings there was a communion meal. And it's only after dealing with grace, beginning with grace and illustrating it before them, that verse 8 is written. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. Okay, law, uh, grace does not do away with law. It enables us to keep the law. <clears throat> if you look down at um, verses 12 and following, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you have crossed over the Jordan. 
Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved image, etc., etc. Okay, what's going on here is um, a symbolism. The curses were pronounced on Mount Ebal. Blessings were pronounced on Mount Gerizim. The altar was not on Mount Gerizim. The altar was on Mount Ebal where it was, it was needed. And he was doing a, an object lesson that would be hard for them to get, a, a, get, a, get around. When the curses were read on Mount Ebal, what the people on Mount Gerizim would say is, Amen, so be it, we agree with you, Lord. When the blessings were read on Mount Gerizim, the people on Mount Edom would do exactly <coughs> the same thing. And as Joshua 8 makes clear, down in the valley were the Levites, around the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of the Lord was and where the law of the Lord was. And when they read the law, it would have one of two results. Cursings on the one side, blessings on the other. God's presence and God's law always has one of those two effects in people's lives. And uh, Mount Ebal was the place where the sacrifice was uh, made because Jesus bore the curse for us. Uh, uh, and if Jesus bears the curse, God's people can say amen to those curses and they don't need to fear, right? Because they're cleansed every time. And believers, by the way, need to repeatedly put their sins under the blood of Christ. You know, it was believers that uh, uh, God said in Exodus uh, during the Passover, he says, uh, put the blood on the lintels of your doorway and everyone who fails to put the blood on the lintels of their doorway, their firstborn was killed, okay? The curse came. It's the blood that we need to apply in our lives. Now, here's the interesting point that uh, Christ made in John chapter 4. Where did the Samaritans worship? They worshiped on Mount Gerizim, okay? That was the mountain of blessings, but also the mountain where there was no sacrifice. And when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, his words seemed kind of abrupt. They seemed, uh, you know, kind of rude, but they were very important words. And as I read the, the little section here, I want you to notice Jesus is treating her religion as being a humanistic religion. The woman said, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. He rejected her worship, and he rejected her law-keeping, uh, because it was worship without sacrifice. It was an attempt to have the blessings of Mount Gerizim while ignoring all of the issues on Mount Ebal. Can you see that? And in order to be able to do that, they had to minimize what the law was that was being read down in the valley. Because nobody can keep that apart from God's grace. It's impossible to fully keep uh, God's laws. And so humanists always have to change God's law. And the point that I'm trying to make is you're always going to have distortions if you have grace without law or law without grace. In the scripture, you only have harmony when the two are side by side. Law and grace have to go together. And any place where law and grace are together, God's shalom is there. God's peace, his blessing is there. Now, there <clears throat> may appear to be a, a contradiction, a couple of contradictions to, to some people. People will say, okay, I'm a believer. I have God's grace. 
how come there is any cursing that comes into my life? How is, how is the cursing consistent with that? And secondly, how in the world can unbelievers <clears throat> in chapter 28 be said to be blessed by the Lord? I mean, they don't, they don't have any, any grace, do they? How, how can unbelievers be blessed? And it's kind of a puzzle, appears to be a contradiction, so I want to unravel those two questions separately. First one, I think, is fairly easy. I don't need to spend a lot of time on that. Uh, believers no longer face a curse from God as judge, right? Uh, we've changed the relationship. We've been spared from judgment. Now he's adopted us into our family, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the law anymore. He still cares about the law. Now he lovingly disciplines his children in order to restore them and draw them back into family fellowship with himself. And uh, he can do so in all kinds of um, uh, creative ways. Um, you know, in, in verse uh, 17, it says, Cursed be your basket and your kneading bowl. You know, how does he curse the grocery <laughs> grocery bags? And how does he cur curse the kneading bowl that you make your bread in? We're not told, but I guess somehow he makes your bread just not uh, turn out. Uh, many different creative ways in which God uh, can uh, lovingly discipline in the lives of his uh, people. If you look at verse 38 of chapter 28, uh, you've got an example of an economic curse. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in, for the locust shall consume it. Next verse, very similar. Uh, verse 60 shows discipline through disease. It says, uh, moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt. So he's creative, and his discipline is for the purpose of restoring. So these curses, they happen, whether you're a believer, whether you're an unbeliever. With one, it's for restoration. For the other, it's for judgment. But the second apparent contradiction is a little harder to understand, and so I've reserved uh, question number four for that, a separate point. How is it that unbelievers can apparently be blessed by God when they're still unbelievers? You see, some of the things that verses 1 through 14 list as blessings that God's putting on Israel, he later says, I'm going to give exactly the same things to unbelievers. How can he do that when an unbeliever uh, uh, is uh, still an unbeliever? And if God's grace is so important. Well, I think in part it flows from common grace, which Gary North says, and I think very rightly, flows from the cross of Jesus Christ every bit as much as special grace does. It has to flow from the cross. Uh, where else uh, could it come from? God causes his rain to shine on the just and on the unjust. Now, it's for the purpose of the church that he does it. See, we believe in limited atonement. God's purpose was to redeem his people and it's for the purpose of the church, but he still blesses unbelievers. When unbelievers follow biblical economic law because of God's restraining grace, and I should point out, even in his restraining grace for economics, it's for the purpose of blessing his church that he does it. But when unbelievers follow biblical economic law because of restraining grace, they're going to have a far more of a financial harvest than a believer who refuses to follow God's financial laws. Does that make sense? Look at Deuteronomy 28. We'll look at a, a couple of examples of this. Deuteronomy 28, we have the blessing in verses 12 through 13. The Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And that's a tremendous blessing to never have to borrow money. Okay? I don't know that any of us here are in that situation. Uh, I'm not. But he says, I, I can bless you to that degree where you never have to borrow money. He goes on, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail, etc. Now, take a look down at uh, verse 44. 
where the same words are used for the heathen. It says, he shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. Okay, God is prospering the unbeliever financially there. Uh, let's take a look at the example of war. Look at verse 7. It says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Okay, now take a look at verse 25 for how God gives the same blessing to unbelievers. God's restraining grace given to unbelievers is so that he can sanctify the church but it's because of his, whatever you want to call it, um, his common grace-induced law-keeping that uh, he can bless them more. Verse 25, <clears throat> he says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. And there are a lot of other ways. Verse 31 promises to give unbelievers sheep. Verse 48 promises them mastery. In fact, this book begins by saying to Israel, don't you dare conquer this nation, this nation, or that nation because I have given them this land and I have uprooted the peoples before them. And the reason that they were still being prospered is God says their cup of iniquity was not yet full. What does he mean? Well, he means that that they are not yet as bad in terms of violating God's laws as they will be in, in, in the future. And uh, we need to ask, what's going on here? And I think it's simple. It's ethics. Over and over again, God says that there are sanctions connected to law-keeping. Just as there are degrees of blessing in heaven, there are degrees of blessing in hell. I mean, cursing. <laughs> Maybe it's a blessing, kind of, but I don't think anything in hell is a blessing. <laughs> so there's degrees of cursing, there's degrees of blessing in eternity, but the same is true in history. Just as there are degrees of blessing and cursing on believers in history, there are degrees of cursing and blessing of unbelievers uh, in history as, as well. In fact, I want to just give a couple. This morning I thought, you know, th this is probably the hardest section. I was telling Kathy, this is probably the hardest section for people to buy. But turn with me to Genesis 39. Some people say it's impossible. God never blesses unbelievers. Take a concordance out. You'll see he blesses unbelievers over and over again. Now, he does it for the sake of his church, for the sake of his believers. That's why it fits in with limited atonement. Common grace is for the sake of having a culture and stability that will enable his kingdom to advance. But let's just look at a couple of examples. Genesis 39, verse 5. Well, let's start at verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And this is Potiphar, a pagan. Then he made him overseer of his house, and all that he had he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed... Notice it doesn't say he blessed Joseph. I mean, he did do that too, but it says the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house ah, for Joseph's sake. Okay, see, that's how it ties in. Common grace is for the sake of the church. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Then he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, etc. Chapter 20, you can look sometime. God uh, healed Abimelech because uh, of, even though he was a pagan, there was a degree of ethically right treatment of, uh, of Abraham when he reversed uh, his decision. And many times, modern Christianity just tries to separate sanctions from uh, or ethics from prosperity, and it's impossible. You will always reap what you sow. Now, Scripture explains this dilemma 
in four different ways. The first way is to say, hey, I have put laws of harvest in place that affect believers or unbelievers. We've already dealt with those. The second way that Scripture deals with this is to say that the degree of harvest we get, whether it's twofold or thirtyfold or a hundredfold, you know, it's in God's hands. Sometimes it depends on whether we're praying for it, believing in it, but God can make differences there. And thirdly, God has special interventions above and beyond those laws of harvest. And then fourthly, the final day of judgment evens out any inequities that people may experience. But there's no way you can separate ethics from sanctions. And I'll just illustrate myself, uh, make an idiot of myself. For years, um, I believe I was violating the covenant because I was ignoring certain economic laws. And I did it in ignorance. I didn't uh, know any better, but the laws of harvest work whether you know about them or don't know about them. And so it's no wonder that I was not being prospered in many of the economic things that I did uh, early on, like uh, some of my pagan uh, buddies uh, were, were being prospered. There are some pagans who prosper more in one area uh, than, than uh, Christians because they've embraced the Calvinistic work ethic, whereas the Christian may be lazy, okay? Uh, or they've inconsistently borrowed from our worldview a belief in a cause and effect universe, while the Christian who claims that he believes that God controls this universe, he's constantly violating. He's saying, okay, Lord, I know that I violated every economic law in the book and I still plan to violate those laws, but give me $20,000 to bail me out just this one time, okay? It's sort of like saying, Lord, I'm not planning on studying in the future. I haven't studied for this exam, but please give me an A. I mean, that's the way many Christians think. And it's just not right. There are cultural blessings that flow in a culture long after it has ceased to be a Christian culture because the culture continues to follow at least some of the laws relative to the areas that they're prospering in. Does that make sense? That's what we're talking about here. Notice in chapter 28, verse 1, that we're not talking about all or none. Okay, we're talking about degrees. He says, now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey. Okay, so there's, there's work, there's perseverance. Diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations, etc. <clears throat> Notice the word all. The only way we can prosper in every area is if we keep God's laws in every area. Look at chapter 29, verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Now, none of us is perfect, perfectly consistent in law-keeping, so none of us can be perfectly blessed in every area of life. I mean, I think it's just an impossibility. We are growing toward that. We're striving to that. And our prayer is that in 3 John verse 2, we would prosper in all things and we would be in health in proportion to how our soul is prospering, our, our holiness, our godliness. And ordinarily, God does that. Ordinarily. Uh, so... Not only are these curses and blessings consistent with special grace, that's point three, they're consistent with common grace, that's point four. Now, we'll hurry on here. The fifth question is this. Do we as Christians really have to accept these cursings? Some people like the promise boxes that are sold at uh, parables, and every day they'll pull out a promise, you know, to make them feel good for that day. Um, I don't know how many of you watched the, the movie Pollyanna. Pollyanna, you know, only one of the happy verses uh, from Scripture. And we've got a happy verse Christianity that just does not like the negative sanctions that are there. But I want you to notice in chapter 27, 
and verse 15, he says, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Okay, notice there is no exceptions. All of the people were supposed to say Amen to these curses. These are people that he's already bestowed his grace upon. And that phrase is repeated 11 more times in this chapter. Why does God not take the church in America more seriously? Well, I think in part it's because we're not holy. In part it's because we have no fear of God before our eyes because we don't believe any curses. Uh, I just don't think it's serious. When a million Christians a year can spend money to go to the Precious Moments Chapel and uh, millions and millions of Precious Moments Bibles, which only highlight the happy verses, can be sold... uh, You know, we, we're just people, I don't think, who seriously are laying hold of the covenant. Implied <clears throat> in each curse in chapter 27 is the opposite blessing. Okay, so it's not just curses. There's a blessing that we're laying hold of as well. And I want to challenge your theology this morning and have you put it into practice by being willing this morning to take these curses upon yourself. <clears throat> and I'm going to interrupt the sermon this morning and uh, pronounce each of these curses. These are kind of representative. They're the worst parts of the law. I mean, the the worst sins, I should say, uh, that are being (coughs) addressed. But I think if you can say amen to these curses, you've really laid hold of the theology of uh, this series that we've gone through. And in, in effect, you're saying, Lord, I'm putting it on the line. I am so serious about pursuing you, pursuing your blessings, pursuing your kingdom. I'm willing, if I abandon your covenant, I'm willing, if I uh, reject your laws, for you to bring these curses upon me. That's how serious I am about pursuing after you. Now, don't say amen just to please your neighbor or to please me. You really do need to um, uh, do need to believe this. But keep in mind, he did say all of the people said amen. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read uh, from verses 15 and following, and you don't you you don't have to read long. You can just um, you can just listen, and here will be the cue at the end of each verse. It says, "And all the people shall say," and that's where you come in with your amen. Okay, you ready for this? Let's go through this, and let's covenant before the Lord and say, "Lord, we're serious. We want you. We want your kingdom. We want your blessings." And so we take the sanctions of your covenant very self-consciously upon ourselves. Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is the one who treats his father or his mother with contempt. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who makes the blind to wander off the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice, do the stranger, the fatherless and widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's bed. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with any kind of animal. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. 
And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. And all the people shall say, Amen. Father God, we do this morning confirm the laws that you have given as being perfect and just and good. And because we want to walk in your blessing and to know your presence, we ask that your Holy Spirit would search our hearts and show show us if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Uh, We pray that you would fill your people with power, that you would keep us from stumbling. Please present us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding great joy. And we love you. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would be we be glorified in us as your people, and we pray this in the strong name of Jesus, in whom alone this covenant can be kept. Amen. You're a covenant breaker. Here he says, I'll bless you in the city. It doesn't matter what location you're in, your location can be blessed. You know, real estate people say the top three rules of buying is location, location, location. And he's saying, you know, location can be blessed by the Lord. You know, we've got this uh, lead problem on our side of town. And people are all worried, you know, are the property prices, you know, going to go down and, and whatnot. But the Lord, even in things like that, He can overrule and He can cause the place that you are in to be prospered. Anyway, He goes on, verse 4. He says, Blessed shall you be in the fruit of your body. That's your children. Some people are, want to pull their hair out, you know, with their children. But He says, I can put so much of my grace into your family that there's going to be nothing but blessing there. But He's assuming we're willing to follow the the rules related to child rearing. Uh, Verse 5, we've already looked at. Verse 6, he says, Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. Man, there's a lot of people wish that they could look forward to going into their house. Wish they could look forward to going to, to work. But he says, it doesn't matter what's happening out there in the world. You can be blessed in it. Um, verse 7 talks about blessing you in times of, of opposition. Uh, verse 8, blessing, you know, if you take the reverse uh, as well, it could be cursing retirement investments and inheritance, the land being passed on. Verse 9, blessing you in your pursuit of holiness, your close walk with God. Verse 10, blessing you in your testimony to unbelievers. Verse 11, blessing your increase. Verse 12, blessing the weather, the finances. Verse 13, your influence, your authority. Verse 20, blessing your, yeah, we mentioned that, insight, wisdom, giving you security. That's the opposite of what's in the the verse, but it's implied there. Verse 21, blessing you with health is what is implied. A lot of people, that's the thing they get hung up on. And I'm not sure why it is, but a lot of people think, uh, you know, I can believe God to bless me in every other area, but healing, no, I just don't, I don't know about that. But read Matthew 8 sometime where he quotes Isaiah 53 um, and let me see if I can quickly find that. Um, where he says um, that he healed uh, all who came that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now in Isaiah, whatever infirmities and sicknesses he is talking about, a lot of people like to spiritualize that, it's clear it was in the atonement. Okay, it was clear that in Isaiah it's in the atonement. <clears throat> Well, I think Matthew defines it as literal sickness and illnesses. Jesus, by his stripes, we are healed. And I think we can lay claim to that. Does that mean we're going to be totally without sickness? No. I mean, there's obviously going to come a time that we're going to die and ultimate healing is in the resurrection. 
But God gives us down payments. Are we going to be perfectly sanctified? No. We're going to wait till we're glorified before we're completely sanctified. But it's still just as much in the atonement. And I think we need to, we need to lay claim uh, to those uh, blessings. Anyway, we better really scoot and move on. Let's skip over a few here. Uh, verse 22, you know, he can cure you of fever and consumption, mildew problems. Anybody mildew problems? Verse 27, uh, disease, things like boils and tumors and scab and itch. Oh, there's a good one. 28 through 29, sanity and mental health. Uh, verse 34, um, you know, some people just go insane when they have too much trauma. Uh, and he says, hey, you can face the worst trauma and still not go insane. I can bless you in that way. Which, by the way, implies God's blessings sometimes coincide with difficulties. Remember in Mark 10, Jesus said he will give a hundredfold more into our lives with persecutions. Okay, it's not all going to be hunky-dory. There's going to be opposition. But he, he can keep you from going mad <laughs> with your opposition. Verse 54. Instead of having hostility in your family, his shalom can invade your family. Verse 55. Instead of starvation, there can be there, there, there can be lack of hunger. Verse 59, prolonged plagues, prolonged sickness. Well, a short sickness is a blessing. <laughs> Instead of a three-month stay, you've got a two-day sickness, okay? Uh, that can be a blessing. Verse 61, also every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. What's the opposite? Well, he, 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 the implication is every sickness that's not mentioned in here, God can keep you away from, right? He can bless you with. Uh, verse 62, uh, birth dearth was seen as a curse. But he says, I can make you explode in your population. Now, that wouldn't be a blessing unless he also caused, uh, instead of fear and lack of assurance, what's the opposite of fear? Um, um, confidence, you know, confidence and, and assurance. Verse 67, instead of dreading the evening, oh boy, I'm going to have insomnia all night. Instead of dreading the, the morning, uh, I've got to go to work, I hate my work. You can look forward to going to bed, look forward to getting up, you know, in the morning. So that's an emotional blessing. Verse 68, uh, instead of having you so dispensable that nobody even wants to buy you as a slave, you can become very indispensable like Joseph was. And so basically what he is saying through this, this passage is our God delights to bless covenant keepers. He delights in pouring blessings into our lives. And uh, we should delight in it as well. Now, in conclusion, I think it's time that Christians stop believing pagan Greek philosophy that renders the body and renders finances and houses and lands that Mark 10 talked about as being irrelevant to Christianity. And they try to escape from it. In fact, there are some Christians who want to escape from this body. You know, Bray has gone in that direction. Why would we want this body? We're trying to escape from this body, you know. But uh, God says, no, our bodies are important. Uh, finances are important. He talks about it a whole lot. In Calcedon Report, Theron Johnson said, how do we reverse this negative trend? Christians must change their attitudes toward wealth. Poverty is not the norm in Scripture. There were many godly men in Scripture who were wealthy and influential. In fact, it's difficult to find examples in Scripture of the contrary. Those who lived by faith were richly, materially blessed by God. Great men of the Bible who had great influence were wealthy men. Solomon, Daniel, Job, Joseph, Boaz, Abraham. These men were not paupers. And some people immediately will come to their minds, well, what about the apostles? You know, surely they were paupers. That is not the case. That is not the case. Uh, I don't have time to develop this. Actually, Bob Fugate uh, several months ago gave me a wealth of information dealing with some of uh, this stuff. But 
James and John were from a family of means. They, um, they, they had a lot of money and a family of standing. They had hired men, Mark 1.20. They were in partnership, Luke 5, 7 through 10. There were hints that they had a continued stream of income uh, coming from that partnership. Apparently, they had one of the larger businesses in Capernaum. It supplied wealthy people like the high priest. And it says in John 18, John knew the high priest personally. It was probably no burden for John when Jesus told him at the cross, I want you to take care of my mother. Behold your mother. He transferred uh, his uh, care to his mother. The kind of house that Peter is said to have was substantial. He was connected to a lucrative business. And Paul said, even though he had learned to suffer want, I mean, he lost everything on shipwrecks. He was naked and cold. and I mean, he had learned all of those things. Uh, he had also learned how to abound in riches. Now, he was very generous with those riches. He used them for kingdom purposes. But let me just give you a couple quotes uh, from commentaries. Paul had use of considerable money at this period, perhaps from his father's estate. The charges for five men would have been considerable. People are puzzling. You know, how in the world could Paul afford that? Shouldn't he be poor? Shouldn't we keep our pastors poor? Uh, poor man, uh, they said, a poor man would not have been treated with the respect paid him at Caesarea on the voyage and at Rome. Uh, if you want to get a hint of that, look at the last chapter of Acts 28. You'll see two verses in Acts 28 where it says, here Paul is being taken, charged, should have been thrown into a jail, and instead he's able to swing things. How he does it, we're not told. He's able to swing things. So all he has is one guard, his guard is not even chained to him. He's in his own house, his own house. We're not told if it's a rented house or if it's a bought house. He's never been to Rome before, but all of a sudden he's got his own house. How does he get that? And it's a house that's spacious enough that all of the leading men, and that's key too, all of the leading men amongst the Jews came and they had a meeting in his house together. It's just not right to say that these people were kept dirt poor. Uh, it does not fit the facts. According to some, Paul and Barnabas financed their first journey, missionary journey, completely by themselves. They financed it. So yes, we do need the balance of the contentment that we preached on last week, but don't let that, you know, balance wealth completely out of the equation. God loves to prosper his people. We've seen from past sermons that people like these had learned like Job to be able to say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm just a steward. Lord, if you want to take it all from me, that's great. The Lord, I am committed here to using finances for your honor and for your glory. And with people like that, like Job, he lost things, he got them back again. And it's my prayer that God would prosper each and every one of you and that that prosperity would, would transfer over into the way that we would impact in terms of dominion this city, would uh, uh, impact this church. Our God is a God who loves to give shalom. Let's pray. Father God.